Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, it must be that time of year. We're talking teacher strike again. One of Canada's most historic energy companies is leaving Canada for the United States. Will others follow? And we remember it was the SNC-Lavalin Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal that helped reduce the Trudeau government to a minority. Will SNC-Lavalin get their deferred prosecution agreement now that the election is over? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The ETFO, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, announced this morning that they have overwhelmingly voted in favor of strike action. Let's bring in Travis Danraj, Queen's Park reporter, Global News. He's with us now. Travis, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime. All right. So what happened this morning? I guess, I guess no surprises here, are there? No surprises. And we had an indication yesterday because we had a leaked email from York Region uh, elementary teachers with ETFO what their uh, strike vote was. And just to be clear, these uh, strike votes have been happening right across the province, and it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that teachers are going to strike. It just, you know, gauges the members on whether or not there's an appetite if it comes down to that and if negotiations break down, uh, if there is support for a strike. So yesterday we found out that uh, York Region members voted 99% in favor of strike action if needed. Today, all of the provincial numbers uh, were, were given by Sam Hammond, who's the president of EPFO, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. 98% of members are in favor of uh, striking if they have to. So, um, obviously, large numbers, too. Like you said, 99%. I think the we're looking at it like at least a 98% average. So, obviously, a very uh, very high mandate to strike. As you mentioned, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. Uh, but how does that change the tone of negotiations, Travis, with having such a high mandate for a strike? Well, I mean, I, I don't think it changes the tone very much, to be honest with you. I mean, both sides, I and mean, this is going to continue for weeks, right? I mean, both sides are, are amping up uh, the pressure tactics. Uh, we, we know that uh, Minister Stephen Lecce is going to be talking to the media this afternoon. He released a statement uh, today basically saying that the government's goal is keeping kids in classrooms and that this is another escalation by the union. Most of this, though, is playing out on the public stage. I mean, you know, both sides are saying, listen, we're at the table in good faith. And then you've got a press conference by Sam Hammond, then you've got, you know, uh, Stephen Lecce talking to the media, and it seems as though this is really uh, a public relations exercise in, in many ways as well. Uh, the government says, listen, we are, we are willing to be flexible here, but when it comes to the issue of salary, um, there are hard lines, and we only want to see a 1% raise. Uh, Sam Hammond today said, even though the, the Minister of Education has been talking about salary and saying that that really is the sticking point, he claims that that hasn't even come up at the table. They're more concerned with class sizes and a host of issues like kindergarten, and he says that they're seeing violence in schools. So, uh, I mean, both sides have their talking points, and as I said, it's playing out in public for all to see. And I guess as the public, we just have to understand to sit down and relax and let this sort of process unfold, let this dance continue until it comes to a conclusion. Yeah, I mean, that, that really is it, right? I mean, with, with the QP negotiations, you saw similar tactics. Uh, you know, both sides, it seems that they were far apart and they were closer together. And, you know, 
you'd have leaks from from CUPE education workers, uh, and then you'd hear leaks from the Ministry of Education. And then when it came down to it, at the 11th hour, they hammered out a deal and there was no strike. I think you were going to be seeing this until, uh, you know, mid-November-ish. Whether or not a strike happens, we'll see. But, uh, you know, educators on the whole in this province are in solidarity with one another. Uh, OSFTF, which is the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, uh, they wanted a no-board report, which essentially puts them in a legal strike position as of mid-November. Uh, they say as well that negotiations are not going well with the province. So could we see a high school teacher strike as well? Well, that's a possibility. Uh, will we hear the premier on any of this? Obviously, so far, uh, Leche has been the point person. Is that going to continue to be the case? Uh, Leche is viewed as a very, uh, probably their best communicator in the government. And you have to remember, he was put into this portfolio just in June when there was that big cabinet shuffle, Lisa Thompson, who, uh, you know, sources say was not viewed as the best person on this file, was shuffled out. Uh, and and Leche brought in. His background is in communications. He was on uh, Stephen Harper's team as uh, in, in the comms division there. Uh, and he's able to, you know, get the government's message out and, and get it out pretty clearly and handle kind of the, the, the hard hits and some of the tough questions. The premier, he was uh, talking to media today very briefly, and he said, you know, that this is another escalation by the union and that they're trying to calm things down. Uh, but I don't think the premier is going to be out in front of this one. I think he's going to let his minister, Stephen Lecce, handle it because so far, at least in, in terms of the government perspective, he's been handling the file well. Uh, is the major issue here still class size? You talked about salary earlier. Uh, is it still class size and, and what's going to happen in the next couple of years? Well, and I mean, listen, this is, this is uh, depending on who you talk to, the sticking points are different, right? If you talk to the union, they say that it's class sizes, that it's kindergarten, that it's violence in the classrooms, and a host of uh, other issues that affect kids. If you talk to uh, the minister, he says, no, this is about salary and about teacher benefits, and he wants to focus on the kids. So, I mean, there, there are diverging storylines here. Um, but ultimately, compensation will become an issue at some point, whether or not that's been discussed yet. Uh, who knows? Uh, we don't know exactly what's going on at the table. But, you know, the union does want to see more than a 1% raise. They want to see it in line with inflation, which is more than 1%. Um, and, and that's going to become an issue. Now, uh, let's say, and I talked to him about this yesterday when the York Region numbers came out, that 99% number, I, I, I talked to him a, a bit about you know, what we could see today, and it, it was what we expected, 98% today. Uh, and he said, look, we, we showed that we were flexible on the high school classroom sizes. We went uh, back to 25 from 28. Uh, however, he, he wants to use as, a, as an indicator that they're going to be flexible with the elementary teachers as well, but they haven't uh, really moved on class sizes there yet. So we'll see, we'll see what happens on that front. Uh, obviously, uh, Ford not the most popular premier right now in the province. Anti-Ford sentiments, will that help the, the, the teachers in these negotiations? Well, you have to consider as well. I mean, the government right now, and I think we talked about this the other day, that they're, they're trying to set uh, a different tone now that they're back from this five-month uh, recess. 
Uh, and so will we be able to see that with these teacher negotiations? Well, that's going to be a huge test. If there really is a reset in tone, then this is where to look for that reset in tone. Uh, one of the other factors here is that when the QP negotiations were going on, you had the backdrop of a federal election. You had what the fallout would be of uh, a strike for Andrew Scheer politically on a federal level. Uh, and you may have seen the House have to be recalled to legislate those workers back to work. That's why, uh, behind the scenes at least, you know, some people are saying that they were quick, the government was quick to get a deal with QP. You don't have that mm. same backdrop uh, for these negotiations with 83,000 elementary teachers and uh, thousands of uh, high school teachers as well. So is the government going to take a harder line? Possibly. So, uh, Travis, how long is this dance? Any idea of a timeline here? Well, I mean, for the high school teachers, and I think the elementary teachers as well, like they're looking at kind of mid-November. Uh, I don't think if they if if there's still no deal by that point, we could see strikes actually happen because they'll be in a legal uh, strike position at that point. Um, I think you know they have been without a contract uh, the teachers since August. I think it was August 31st or so. So both sides want to get a deal dragging this out, uh, leaving uncertainty for parents, I don't think helps either side's case. Uh, so uh, next month, I, well, I guess it's this month, right? Yesterday was Halloween. This month, mm -hmm. uh, probably by you know mid to end of month, we should see some movement on it. We talked the other day, Travis, about the tone. Have you noticed anything different about the premier? Is there a different buzz in the air around there now? Yeah, I mean, some people are joking that he went to premier school while he was on his break. He, has a, he, has a <laughs> went, to, he went to finishing school. He went to finishing school. There you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, there there has been uh, a bit of a different tone. I, there aren't as many standing ovations in the legislature during question period. Um, from his calm staff, you are seeing a more conciliatory tone with, with the media. But will that last? That's the big question, right? I mean, the, the opposition say... That, that tone is one thing, but policy is uh, uh, another. Uh, and that, that you know, uh, intersection of both of those things meets with these teacher negotiations. So we'll see, as I said, if the tone and the policy, when they come head to head, uh, how it's going to go. Uh, anything minus the grandstanding as far as the cheerleading goes would be nice. Was that as obvious as it looked? Uh, it, it, it was... <laughs> It was pretty obvious, yeah, indeed. So, I mean, you know, this is this is a new chapter for them, I guess. As I said, he's got a different chief of staff in place. Uh, Dean French is gone. He's trying to put the scandals and, uh, you know, the, the bad press that he had initially for the first year behind him and turn the page. Can he do that? Well, they're, they're trying to. They're, you know, but the, the unions... Um, are not having it right now. Travis Danraj has been with us, Queen's Park reporter, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Travis, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
Scott. Thank you. All right. As we were mentioning, Ontario teachers have voted overwhelmingly in favor of a strike vote. Now, this does not necessarily mean that there will be a strike, but it is another tool in their toolbox with their negotiations, uh, ongoing negotiations with the government in regard to uh, teachers' contracts and such. Let's bring in Charles Pascal, Professor Applied Psychology and Human Development and Special Advisor to the Dean OISE University of Toronto and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. Uh, surprised at the size of this mandate, this, the fact that it was like a 98% vote. Does that have, no, any, no, does no, that no, have no. any significance here? Well, it's, it's very significant, and no, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, let's remember, first of all, 98% is, uh, it doesn't get much better than that, almost by definition. That's an A+. Plus. That's, a, that's an A+, plus in terms of uh, the collective bargaining process. Uh, taking strike votes is a part of the legal process of collective bargaining uh, in our province and pretty much elsewhere. Uh, was I surprised? No, not at all. I mean, let's, let's remember the people who are voting uh, are not, you know, huge uh, rabble-rousing table founders. They're elementary school teachers who are pretty middle-of-the-road people dedicated to the success uh, of their students and ours. Uh, so basically, this represents an expression of their lived experience uh, under the current uh, government. <clears throat> and uh, for the uh, minister uh, and his boss to say that this strike vote is escalating and putting, uh, you know, heat on the process as though it's a negative just shows um, either how naive they are or how this is an ongoing part of, of uh, the misinformation campaign. Uh, so it's, it's all part of the, the process. Uh, and when I say lived experience, it's this government under this uh, uh, premier and his more recently appointed minister uh, that have basically uh, created the context for all of this, uh, including the devastating changes to class size and a whole bunch of other things that the people of Ontario all know about. So regarding where the people are at, everybody knows people who are teaching or, uh, you know, in, in elementary school and, and high school, and they know uh, what's been happening and they know the effects of it. So the, the premier and the minister, the minister in particular, who's a, a misinformation machine, they need to kind of cool it uh, publicly. And the but, only way... But Charles, let's be honest. We have this dance, no matter what the government of the day is, including the last one and the one before that, which was the premier's, uh, supposedly the teacher's premier. So, you know, as you were saying, it, it's, it's anecdotally talking to teachers. Everybody knows one. Again, having two kids in the system and, been, and have been through this dance a couple of times now, what do you say to the parents who are, you know, again, despite the government of the day, their kids are being used as pawns by not just the government of the day, but also by teachers' unions? Uh, well, actually, we haven't. Uh, there was uh, pretty much uh, a good deal of peace uh, regarding the nature of, of uh, the use of, um, of uh, you know, strikes or walkouts. Uh, you know, under uh, the previous governments you're talking about. Again, I can remember my kids at least twice yeah. losing extracurricular activities. So again, whether it's a full-blown strike or it isn't, it still affects us parents and adds stress to our life in a way that probably shouldn't be. How do we change this system and alleviate that despite a labor dispute? Because other labor disputes get that get solved without this sort of uh, of disruption and without this sort of control. Is there any way to modernize this in any way so we don't have to put th parents through this every couple of years? 
Well, again, I, I'm, I'm going to have to disagree with your premise. You're you're referring to the extracurricular activities where uh, the teachers uh, decided to withdraw as part of a tactic, uh, and that had some consequences. But we've not seen anything, Scott, uh, like the changes uh, to class size, the withdrawal of millions and millions of dollars to elementary and secondary education in Ontario. We haven't seen anything like it. Uh, since the, the Harris government. Now, I, you're talking to a former deputy minister who doesn't have a card for any political party. I'm a nonpartisan individual who's informed by the evidence. I'm so, not saying I'm not saying that this isn't the biggest change and the biggest disruption. I, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. But what I'm saying is through the parents, for the parents and the kids, this is just an ongoing thing. This yeah, might so be the worst that it's got. But again, you know, I remember my kids losing their musical. I remember my kids losing their after-school sports. So whether it's this or that in the technology, the terminology, the way it's addressed in the media, at the end of the day, it still affects the kids and the parents. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly, as a parent and a grandparent who's gone through the same thing. I'm, and as a girl, and as a, as a parent who's got a kid in grade 12 this year, I'm even more concerned. So, again, you know, uh, you can use the terminology and whatever happens between the teachers' unions and their negotiations, but at the end of the day, this is incredibly stressful and disruptive to the parents and the kids. Yeah, no, these things can be. And, and certainly right now, you're the grade 12 uh uh, a child that you have or a young adult that you have obviously uh, could be a part of the consequences of what's taking place with the thousands of teachers and the courses that have gone out the window uh, that there's no longer there's no longer available uh, to people like your, your your 12th grader. And again, Charles, the only yeah. point I'm coming back to is that every government of the day we end up in the same place, unfortunately, I find as a parent. I'm going to have to let you go there, Charles. Charles Pascal has been with us, Professor of Applied Psychology, Human Development Special Advisor to the Dean uh, University of Toronto. You know, there's always a way to vil- uh, to validate your argument, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, as a parent with kids, I don't know if you're helping me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, We've talked uh, quite a bit over uh, the last year or two in regard to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, what is happening with that in the oil industry uh, in the West. Obviously, this last election uh, has has started uh, rumblings of separation and such again. Hopefully, we don't get to that point, uh, whether it's Quebec or uh, the West. Uh, One word, Brexit. How's that working? Uh, so, I, you know, I don't think we're going to get to that extent, but certainly there are tensions between East and West. And now we hear the most historic energy company in Canada has decided to, well, leave and go to the States. And Canada has filed paperwork to make it a American company. What does that mean? And what does all of this spell for uh, the Canadian oil industry? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Trick or treat. Trick or treat. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we're on another day now. Aren't no, we? Yeah. no. That was only in Quebec. I think you're good here. Although okay. I, I think now you can actually go out twice, Marvin. Can I? Oh, yes. Yes. Today, in Mexico, this is the big day. It's the Day of the Dead today. It wasn't last night. It's today. Well, now you've confused us all even more. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if I, I'm going to put my costume on inside out and go out again. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Perfect. There's leftover candy somewhere. I know there has to be. Let's start at my own house. All right. Give us, first of all, tell us about uh, Encana and the right. history of this company. 
Well, you, you're absolutely correct. It's a, it's a very old company. Its roots go back to the early uh, 1860s as Canada was forming as a nation. Uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, one of his big, I guess I can call it an election plank or election platform, was the idea of linking the country from coast to coast, and he wanted a railway built. So he went to uh, formed a couple of companies, and one of them was the CPR, and said to them, look, if you will build the railroad to help absolve you of some of your costs and risks, I'll grant you the rights to whatever lies underneath that soil. Now, back in 1867, it wasn't oil that people were thinking about. They were thinking about things like gold and copper and silver reserves. But regardless, he granted the company the rights to whatever was under the soil. And fast forward a little bit over the next 40, 50 years, clearly then it was the oil rights that became very important. And that's when this company was was uh, created. It used to have a name like uh, Alberta Energy or something like that. Then it bought something else. And the name has changed over time to now being Ancana. There's actually a spinoff company. Ancana focuses primarily on natural gas. Its spinoff company, it spun off as dealing with oil. But Ancana is more of a natural gas company. And what they announced yesterday on October 31st was that they were going to move their head office operations for the purposes of um, you know registering the company etc into the United States they said they were going not because they were fed up with Justin Trudeau and not because they were fed up with pipelines but they said it was all about access to capital being a Canadian company based in Calgary they didn't get access to things like pension fund money in the United States or other kinds of investments in the United States. When people were looking at lists of companies that were in the oil sector, uh, and Canada wasn't on the list, so they have decided to move there, change the name of the company to something that's almost unpronounceable, Aventix or something like that, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, and that there will be no jobs lost in Canada. They aren't selling their Canadian operations. They're very proud of all of their resources here in Canada. This is much more about access to capital than anything else. Uh, is anybody buying that? Well, I am. I, I, I Let me just say I am because they're not affected by Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, they might have been affected if this had happened a couple of years ago. You might remember something called the Northern Gateway Pipeline. Mm-hmm. That was a pipeline proposed that would run quite a bit north of where the Trans Mountain is, and in fact, about halfway up the B.C. coastline. The, pl- the plan there was to take liquefied natural gas and ship it by pipeline to the uh, Pacific Ocean, uh, British Columbia would establish a base there. That was part of Christie Campbell's uh, plans for British Columbia. They'd establish a base there and then sell liquefied natural gas. That pipeline did not get approved, but that's two and a half years ago. And the fact that Encana didn't do that then says they were still fine with it. But I do think today uh, it is certainly true that if I've got money in the United States and I'm looking for places to invest it, I am not thinking of Canada. So this is a slam against Canada, not because Ancan is moving, but because it's hard to get American dollars to flow north of the border to invest in anything Canadian at this point. Many have talked about the restrictions that uh, government has put on any sort of expansion, any yep. sort of uh, business in uh, the energy sector. Does this play into that in any in any way? I mean, is absolutely. It, yeah. You no, know, absolutely. So is Canada sending the message that we're not interested in this sort of business? I'd prefer to phrase it this way. I think we're sending mixed messages. I think one day we seem like we uh, don't want any investment because we put up barriers, and then the next day we approve the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And people say, well, wait, well, what is it? Right, do you want it? Do you not want it? And that's the challenge facing Well, Justin either way, Trudeau. when you think about it, Marvin, the result's the same. It doesn't get done. It doesn't get done, yeah. Well, that's because of the courts, though. 
the, the reason why the Trans Mountain, twice Justin Trudeau and his government has approved Trans Mountain, and twice we haven't had a shovel in the ground because courts have delayed it, I am hopeful this most recent round of the court challenges are coming to an end, and we will see. Even Justin Trudeau himself has said he wants to see shovels in the ground in 2020. But the bottom line is the world, business world in particular, loves certainty. We like to know where we stand, where we're welcomed, where we're not welcomed, and the messages coming out of Canada have been quite mixed. Take Trans Mountain as a great example of this. We were first talking, you and I were first talking about Trans Mountain five years ago. Mm-hmm. In theory, by now, the pipeline should have been built. We still haven't really got a shovel in the ground. Well, how many more years are going to have to go by? And if I've got money and I want to spend it and I want to get a return, I'm not getting a return if all I've got are plans. I need action. And clearly a state like, let me think, Texas is very <laughs> pro the oil industry, and things mm-hmm. get done in Texas. So... That's where the money is flowing, and thus and Canada has said we need to establish a base of operations in the United States to put ourselves in that loop, and that's what they're doing. Uh, getting back to the pipeline, is it death by delay? Well, let's put it this way. I think there'd be environmentalists who, who love that idea. If we mm-hmm. can just delay this enough, put up enough court challenges, they're going to give up on it. Or um, the world might evolve past the need for these pipelines. So. Uh, again, I've talked so you're going to you delay it for 30 to 50 years? Yeah, well, that you know, the longer you <laughs> delay it, maybe they won't need it. Bill, Bill Kelly and I and you and I have talked about this with cars. Mm. You know, everyone thinks the future of cars is electric vehicles. You're even hearing this from Ford and GM. But the reality today, only 1% of vehicles being sold run on electricity. So what's going to happen? And the environmentalist people, or, or maybe some of the more rabid green people, believe it's going to be like the CD being introduced and changing the record industry. Almost overnight, we went from having vinyl albums to CDs. They think there's a, a point at which a car can drive both the distance and the refueling time that once the electric cars have that, we're going to switch on a dime. So if I can delay this for five years, ten years, what I say back to them is I don't foresee a future without oil in some form, yeah. not because of fuel, although that is certainly a use for oil, but we do a lot of other things with oil. There are drugs that we produce. There are petrochemicals and plastics. We, we use the, uh, petroleum-based products in so many other ways. So even if we don't demand it for fuel, 100 years from now, we're still going to need oil doing something. That's why I'm not completely opposed to twinning pipelines, especially when no virgin territory is being used in some dirty way. Uh, the prime minister says the pipeline will be built. Uh, he purchased the pipeline, and yet with policy that's been put in place, we have obviously oil industry uh, oil industry companies, that, uh, as you said. I mean, it's just too unstable for them to invest. Yeah. So with this uh, instability, how does the prime minister hope to sell this pipeline one day? <laughs> well, let's break that into two chunks. If we can actually get a shovel in the ground and things start to happen, then the business community is going to say, oh, oh, okay, so they actually can get something done. Granted, it took a long time, but we need to demonstrate to the world, if we are open for business, that we can get business done, and, and putting a shovel in the ground will do that. Now, how will he sell the pipeline? Well, that's actually the easy point here, Scott. The current Trans Mountain Pipeline, the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline, is operating at 100% of capacity. It is full to the brim with oil, and it is booked years in advance to transport oil. And in fact, the other aspect is because you don't have a twinned pipeline, there are hundreds of thousands, let me say that again, 
hundreds of thousands of train cars full of oil moving from the you know tar sands edmonton whatever kind of an area down to vancouver and even down to seattle so we got oil moving today we still have oil moving it's just i think better for all of us if we put it in the pipeline rather than having those train cars rattling down roads and and who knows what they might fall off and do to a town as we saw in lac mcgontic so I think if they twin the pipeline, you're going to see that a, a second transbound pipeline will instantly be operating at 75, 80, 90 percent of capacity. And if I've got full pipelines for sale, uh, trust me, the world will come knocking. That's lovely guaranteed revenue. Nobody's going to turn a bad eye to that. Uh, getting back to Encana, what message does this send uh, to leaders and leaders of companies uh, with this company moving, does it change the energy discussion in Canada? Well, it's concerning. It's concerning given that Canada is a petroleum-based economy. Uh, nearly three-quarters of the companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange are involved with oil in some way. Up till yesterday's announcement by Encana, I think we believed in Canada that we were still a very petroleum-friendly kind of place. But to have this major company, this major historic Canadian company saying, while we're going to keep all of our operations in Canada, for us to get access to the capital need, we've got to have a head office in the United States, that is worrying. And it would be more worrying if next week or the week after or the week after that, they were joined by another company and another company. We already saw earlier this year an iconic Canadian company in the oil sector called TransCanada. Normally you follow that with the word pipeline, TransCanada Pipeline who uh, renamed themselves TC Energy. And they also established a head office in the United States. Now, they didn't close their Canadian head office, but they established an office in the United States for the same reason, to get access to capital. So I'm more worried if Encana was going to move a lot of jobs, say thousands of jobs south of the border, that would worry me. If what they're doing is creating a head office to get access to capital, and that means 100 jobs, 200 jobs, that's not the end of the world. But if we start seeing a migration, and that's, of course, the the doomsday scenario, if you will, for our prime minister, our current prime minister, that would really more alienate Alberta and Saskatchewan and more of that Wexit talk that you alluded to earlier. If this is just, you know, you're doing something for corporate reasons, it's like, for instance, uh, Apple Computers, their head office is officially in Switzerland, so they can pay a very low tax rate, even though most of their employees are based in California, but technically their capital is someplace else. That's what we've got to sort out and see what this happens in the oil industry. Does this, uh, and you touched on this just a second ago, uh, does this put more pressure on the prime minister to get other projects like the pipeline built? Yeah, so let me again split that into two chunks. It doesn't necessarily mean we should be building a lot of fresh virgin pipelines. So I don't think there's any pressure on him to revisit the Northern Gateway Pipeline, the liquefied natural gas pipeline. That's done. People understand why it's done. We're not going to revisit that. But there sure is pressure to get Trans Mountain done. Certainly is pressure to do Keystone. And then the, the other tough one, really tough one for the Prime Minister, is what was called the Energy East Pipeline, yeah. which was going to bring oil from the West, not just to Ontario, but let me think about it, all the way to the East Coast, which means the pipeline has to go through uh, Quebec. Yeah. And Quebec has set across our dead body. Now, because we have a minority parliament, our prime minister needs the support of one of the two uh, smaller opposition parties, either the Bloc Québécois or the NDP. 
The NDP have come out saying they're opposed to pipelines, so they're not going to support anything, whether it's involving Trans Mountain or Keystone or Energy East. Uh, the Bloc Québécois are not anti-pipeline. Build a pipeline in B.C., we're fine with that. Build a pipeline in Saskatchewan and Manitoba heading the United States, we're fine with that. Man. Oh, you want to run a pipeline through Quebec across our dead body, and yeah. that's the pipeline that causes the prime minister the and, and at the end of the day, Marvin, uh, you know, climate change debate uh, aside, with, with the Northern Gateway and the Energy East, is this not the best way in order to get the world into a cleaner place by using our cleaner natural resources rather than coal? It certainly is part of the transition. I think that's, you know, if I'm an environmentalist, my future sees us wean completely off uh, oil and what are called fossil fuels of any form, and we're into this electricity and renewable resources. That's my future. But my future is 75 years down the road, 80 years down the road. How do I get there? Well, the first step is to get us away from the dirtiest stuff. Let's think what that is. That's coal. And for instance, Ontario's already coal closed its coal-fired electrical plants. But believe it or not, coal is still well used in places like New Brunswick, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Well, how do we get them off that? A good first step would be to move them to natural gas, which burns much more cleanly than coal. And then, yes, ultimately, let's talk about other forms of energy. So you're right. I think if we can get our natural gas out there and selling it to the world, it's a great intermediate step towards what will ultimately be a clean future three generations from now. Isn't it ironic that Vancouver hosts the largest coal port in North America? Yeah, well, there's that's uh, not completely ironic because, of course, most of Canada is landlocked. If I mine coal in Alberta, there are no ports in Alberta. There are no ports in Saskatchewan. Uh, even in Manitoba, the only port's really in Hudson Bay. Thank goodness it doesn't have to cross Quebec. Right, exactly. So we, we ship out of the east or the west coast, so it's not completely surprising given that a lot of our coal reserves are in places like Saskatchewan and Alberta. It doesn't make sh- sense to ship but it wouldn't all it be, the way. wouldn't it be nicer if we were shipping uh, cleaner forms of energy than coal, as in natural gas or even oil? So... I'm going to say yes, but again, I have to put a little asterisk there to say again, I'm not completely trying to say we should give up all coal jobs either. We have to transition, and we need to move this in the right way, use the right thing in the right way, and it takes longer than one day or one year or one week to do this. You've got to transition it. When are we going to have that discussion, Marvin? Because we seem to be screaming and yelling a lot and jumping up and down and nothing's really getting accomplished and and we're not getting to that end resolve. How do we get there? Is it just going to be time that takes us there? Well, I'm I'm not sure. You, you're correct to say about the screaming and yelling uh, what's going on there. And the screaming and yelling seems to be at the two ends of the continuum. Either yeah, everything yeah. has to be green, it has to be green tomorrow, or I'm not buying into any of this. Climate change is a hoax. Mm-hmm. I don't believe any of it's true. I think there's a lot of us, and I'm going to include myself in this, that are somewhere in the middle. I I get climate change, and I want to do what I can to uh, reduce the chances. I personally live a lower-carbon lifestyle than I lived 25 years ago, but I don't live a zero-carbon lifestyle. I can't quite see myself getting there. And the moderate voices seem to be getting drowned out by the extremes at either end. Mm. Uh, one other quick example, you know, there's nothing wrong with Greta Thunberg, who's come here from Sweden and has been visiting, but this is a 16-year-old girl. I don't take climate change advice from a 16-year-old girl. Yeah. She's very passionate. I get that. But she doesn't have any expertise. I want people who understand. I'd like to see them leading the debate 
But the minute we try to put one of them in there, someone who's at one end or the other starts screaming, and then they just say, well, fine, if you don't want to listen, I'm not going to bother talking. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. I will. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The kids survived Halloween's weather hell. Well, of course they did. There's candy at the other end. Unlike uh, Montreal and 20 municipalities in and around uh, the area in Quebec said, no, we can't do that. It's going to be a big windstorm, going to be hell, going to be, you know, doesn't matter if we've been in shorts and snowsuits in the past. Everybody run for cover. Now, I can understand if there was like a uh, weather warning or advisory or what have you, but mm, no. So now I guess they just, everybody gets two Halloweens now. And the Montreal mayor said, you know, I can't believe the backlash. You're, dar- you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. No, just don't. You won't be damned at all. Know why? Not your job. Too much government. Too much government. Telling me what to do. Telling me how to think. Telling me what to wear. Telling me how to feel. What about the bridges? What about the roads? What about health and education? Focus over here, kids. Over here. Leave Halloween alone. Uh, feel free to weigh in on that. We would love to hear from you. As well, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Here's a man I know went out tra- uh, trick-or-treating. Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. We're going to talk about everything from uh, Andrew Scheer and leadership in the Conservative Party to SNC-Lavalin, and he is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, you, your thoughts on governments of the day uh, deciding when to hold Halloween? I, you must be a big fan of that. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're absolutely right. I did go out, but it should be pointed out it wasn't me. I actually took my son out. But, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm not a fan of that at all, and I don't think most people would be. It doesn't matter what your ideological leanings would be. Um, you know, it is understood to be October 31st based on history based the way we celebrate it in many different countries around the world, including Canada. And the fact that weather and the weather would actually disrupt people or, or lead certain organizations and individuals to state that maybe we should cancel it for a day because it's going to rain or it's going to snow or good heavens, Scott. You know, my son is 11 years old, and now he has gone out for Halloween nine times in his life where it is either rained or snowed, depending on where we live. Exactly. And that's Canada. Is this a sign of where we're going as a society? I mean, you know, I've had many discussion with my middle-aged friends that have said, we're turning into a socialist country. We're turning into? I thought we were already. (laughs) But I, I do think what is happening, and I hate using this term, and I'm sorry if it turns off some of your listeners, This is the snowflake mentality, which is interesting because that's part of the weather people were complaining about. But everyone is, you know, since when did we complain about how bitterly cold it was going out for Halloween or how much rain there was? Yeah, when my son and I went out, there was a ton of rain. And it obviously was disconcerting to a lot of people, and it discouraged a lot of kids from coming. We had, I think, among the least number of people come to our door for trick-or-treating, at least that I can remember, and we've lived here in this house for years. So that's unfortunate in one sense, and it maybe shows where our generation or where our society is moving, 
But honest to God, one of the things we were known for or kidded about in Canada was our ability to survive the weather. Yeah, remember? Yeah. Igloos, beer, yeah. back bacon. Jesus, and what, what is happening to people? And what sort of message does it send to the kids that, you know, when times are tough, we just put the world on hold until it gets nicer again? I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it just turns it into a different type of adventure every year. That's all. It really does. I agree with you. And sure, at the end of my son and I being out, and I think I was out with him for about an hour or so. I mean, just the weather. Look, even I, sure. the weather got really bad near the end. So, And he was getting tired, so I get his point. But um, at the same time, you're right, Scott. It is an experience. It's part of living in this country. It's part of going out at that time of year. Plus as well, I mean, our childhood only lasts for so long. And most hmm. children enjoy going out knocking on doors, going trick-or-treat, getting candy, and coming home. And gradually, over some a few days, some a few weeks, they consume everything. That's part of the fun. And that's the whole reason I didn't like this to begin with. It ruins our children's fun. You know, there's no need to discuss this. Even if it's well-meaning conversation, Halloween is October 31st, and come rain or shine, or or whatever weather we Mm. face, we are always going to go out. So, all right, I'm going to keep going. Talk I'm, about it, but it's unnecessary. I'm going to keep going in this direction, and we'll hopefully get a little bit of time for SNC Lavalin at the end. Sure. But another another point I wanted to bring up here in re- reference to uh, the country continuing to slant left in certain situations or ideology. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we've seen the Liberal Party, whether it's provincially or federally, uh, try to head the NDP off at the past, pulling them. Uh, farther and farther to the left, but yet the narrative or the narrative that the left seems to paint of the right pushes them farther and farther to the right, If, uh, or it appears that way. Um, so when we're having these discussions about leadership and the Conservative Party and such, does the Conservative Party not realize there is a gaping hole in the center right now that they need to fill? And that, you know, there's no need to be going off into extremes. I mean, the fact that Maxime Bernier didn't get any seats uh, after his campaign, isn't there a message here that we need a conservative party to, to rethink where they are and, and where, the, where the hole is in Canadian politics? Well, politics is evergreen. So, I mean, obviously, you know, the pendulum swings one way or the other, and you have to follow with it. Um, I'm not defending it, but that's just sort of the way it goes. But in terms of whether the Conservatives realize there is this gaping hole, you have to look at it also based on the way people think about the right on the political spectrum and the way people on the right think about themselves. I mean, most Conservatives that I know of, because I am one, most of us do not perceive ourselves to be extremists, quote-unquote, that we are basically marching towards conventional theory on a lot of conservative ideas, both fiscally and socially, that will benefit the country. You know the mantra, smaller government, lower taxes, more individual rights and freedoms, along those lines. Why is that message getting lost? Sorry? Why does that message seem to be lost or overpowered by opposition? What, What is the party not doing correctly? Well, I think the problem is, and you just touched upon it right there when you asked me that question, the opposition is controlling the narrative. And any time that happens, in this case, obviously, the political left, if they continue to control the narrative and continue to shower the fact that they think that the conservatives would bring in a hidden agenda, for example, which was a common theme when my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, was prime minister or was running to be prime minister. It was something that they thrown out. 
it's not unique in this country. Other countries have used it as well, and other parties on the left have used it. But it had some success in the 2004 federal election, but was unsuccessful in the 2006. In 2019, they sort of brought it out again with Andrew Scheer. And again, it's the way that you construct a message, a political message, or a response with some of these rapid response units that can either help or hinder you during a campaign. The problem, unfortunately, that Andrew Scheer's campaign had is that, yes, they were able to deflect some of these controversies, but then others, they got completely stuck in the weeds when it came to issues like gay marriage, abortion, or even just his own personal controversies like holding dual citizenship between Canada and the U.S., which is so meaningless. But the problem is he had never discussed it before, and it just unfortunately exploded into a major issue. And also due to the fact that he had been critical of former Governor General Mikhail Jean a number of years before, previously, because of the same issue, although her dual citizenship is obviously different. I think, again, it's the way you respond to controversies that will deem your success or failure, both as a leader and as a party. And unfortunately, you know, Andrew Scheer and the Tories, you know, they did well overall in the sense that they grew 26 seats. They actually finished first in the popular vote, both narrow margins between the Tories and the Liberals. But the problem is those are also also ran numbers. What really matters in this country, which operates under the the first-past-the-post system, is the number of seats you earned. And the Liberals, through a bare, I think it's now at 33.07%, I just looked at it recently for something I was writing, that is extraordinarily low. It's the lowest percentage of any party to take or hold power in this country ever. It beats Sir John A. Macdonald's record of about 34.8% when he was first elected prime minister way back in 1867. Yet even with about 67% of the country opposed to Justin Trudeau, and I know the liberals don't like that narrative, but they are because they voted against them, he will still take control of the political narratives, A, because he holds government, B, because he has a strong minority of 157 seats, and C, because a lot of Canadians still do not trust the Conservatives enough hmm. to give them the reins of power again. So can Andrew Scheer Harper lost in twenty fifteen. Can Andrew Scheer win back Ontario? Or is it require well, does it require a new leader and a new branding? No. no, it doesn't require a new leader. Absolutely not. And I'm really getting a little tired of all these knives coming out of conservative circles for this, you know, from Peter McKay, from hmm. Michael Chong and others. It's not that they don't have their own vested interests. That's the way politics operates. It's not that I'm even shocked this is happening because conservatives by nature love to eat their own. It's a terrible characteristic about ourselves that it's something I wish conservatives, as being since I am one, didn't have. But it is part of our it's part of our nature. I say the same thing about radio, uh, Michael. What do you mean? I say the same thing about about radio, the industry. What do you do, right? Well, yeah, sure. No, no, I'm um, part of it too. You're right. It does eat its own. Yeah. So, uh, so, so Peter McKay, off base in what he said? Yeah. I mean, I know why he did it. He obviously is doing it to get a bit of a name for, him, for himself, to get some publicity, to get some media attention, to sort of use a Canadian analogy to sort of state that Andrew Scheer failed because he had it like, you know, he had an empty net. I'm just paraphrasing. And the puck completely missed it. It wasn't quite like that, especially because if you think at the beginning of this year, most people thought that Justin Trudeau would just coast to victory. Mm-hmm. Everyone basically said re- the re-election bid will be his. 
It was always believed that Andrew Scheer was part of the a two-election process, which most party leaders are under. You get two kicks of the can to win, and if not, you're usually turfed out. That's typically how it works for the bigger parties. Some of the smaller ones are, you know, the major or mid-majors, if you wish to call them that, like the New Democrats, who have never held federal power, but some of their leaders have lasted more than two federal elections. They don't necessarily follow it, but that's just sort of an understood principle. However, Andrew Scheer, yeah, it's true that he missed an opportunity, but it was an, it was an unexpected opportunity, A. And like I said, B, he actually did better overall than a lot of people envisioned would happen this year when the federal election was held. So yeah, it, it kind of balances out to some extent. Can he win over Ontario, as you sort of asked? Yes, he can, but he needs to obviously have a rethink. They need to reboot some of the things that they've done go back and speak to the grassroots members they'll have their party convention next year to discuss issues and there will be a leadership review which mr Shear will have to go through and will have to survive if he wants to continue on which i believe he does to move forward but to hope that somehow or other the old as people are trying to suggest the old red tory or federal progressive conservative mantra has to be brought back to some extent absolutely not the answer very quickly scott is to go back to the way Stephen Harper managed his government, which is called incremental conservatism. You move things one step at a time, not overpowering to the right, overpowering hmm. to the left, just moving in the right direction for fiscal and social issues that will benefit the country. And it worked. He won three elections. Two was a minority government, one was a majority. And he was just defeated back in 2015. It wasn't quite that long ago. That's the right route back to success. All right, let's talk about SNC-Lavalin. Obviously, this sure. a big part of uh, the election campaign prior to that with the Jody Wilson-Raybould scenario. Many, uh, this all started with uh, pressuring Jody Wilson-Raybould into uh, giving them a deferred prosecution agreement. Even during the election campaign, uh, the prime minister didn't say either way whether they, they would or would not get it. Uh, no. Sort of trying to play both sides of the street there. Now that the yep. election is over, do they get a, a deferred prosecution agreement? I don't know. It's a good question. Some people are wondering about that. The NSC-Lavlin case has just entered into some discussions as we're going to find out more about the Libyan connections, and that just sort of came out today, obviously. That's part of the major news cycle. Um, I don't, you know, it, let's put it this way. If you really think about things realistically and just put on your political hat, whether you have one or not, this is a lightning rod for controversy. The liberals know it. One of the reasons that the Liberals collapsed in the polls to some degree is because of NSC Loblin. Yes, the controversy died down, and yes, they were able to recover. We know that. But it was something that knocked literally 10 points off the, their opinion poll lead to the stage where when you sort of look at it and you think about it directly, why would you want to go back to something like that? Like, why would you want to go back to the well hmm. and dredge up an issue that did not benefit you in the first place? They would be wise to ignore it, to not get involved in it, and allow the criminal proceeding to move forward, which is what they should have done in the first place, Scott. What does that do for their base in Quebec, especially with the bloc being so powerful and if they need bloc support? Yeah, no, you're right, and it's it's look. I mean, they're lighting two ends of the candle. They really have a real, yeah. they have a real problem that way. You're absolutely right. Um, I think that the liberals know realize that the Bloc Québécois has regained a lot of its support. Yes, a fair bit of it was due to anger against the liberals, and maybe even a little bit 
of anger, frustration against the NDP, who almost got wiped out in Quebec, but more so Trudeau. But secondly, this is a very different bloc Québécois, and I know that everyone and some of my fellow pundits are trying to sell the message that this is still the same separatist-slash-sovereignist party before. And yeah, elements of it definitely exist, but you have to look at what Yves-Francois Blanchet is actually promoting as the leader of the party. He's promoting a nationalist vision. Now, you can say whatever you want, and you can make the argument that it's more of the same. It actually isn't. Nationalism, although obviously it has its bad tenets, is more inclusive in nature, if you actually look at the actual definition of it. It's something that builds a national identity. It's something that Quebecers, in general, can work around or build around or take pride in. There's lots of bad elements to it, and we know that. We don't have to go through it today. But I think that because the bloc has changed its political stripe to some degree, which, yes, may be to its benefit, or, yes, it's just something that's politically viable, and they realize it, or it could be real. If you put all those three things together, especially with NSC Lavalin, the liberals have to walk on eggshells with this issue. And although a lot of Quebecers during the NSC Lavalin controversy did not get worked up about it like the rest of Canada did. That's true. It's still something that the rest of Canada will be furious about if the Liberals even try to intervene to any extent. And with a minority government in place, I wouldn't touch it. And, you know, you think about that, Michael, a minority government, the bloc in the SNC, uh, Lavalin issue, uh, and then other issues that are going on throughout uh, the country, the yeah. example, the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline issue. I mean, yes. they're going to have to walk a very fine line this term. Without question. You have to walk a fine line with a minority government, as you know, Scott, and that's the obvious point. But especially now, and you're quite correct in pointing this out, a lot of controversial issues, or at least a lot of issues that Canadians will be very, very concerned about if the, excuse me, if the Liberals don't handle it properly, or if they try to sort of act like they did in their first, first four years of power, where they almost looked snide in the way we're doing, professorial, that they basically knew better than everyone else, yeah. that their vision was more powerful than anyone else's. If there was one message that they got in the 2019 federal election, it's that, yeah, they won, but they were reduced to a minority and lost 20 seats overall. So Canadians are not pleased with them. They were pleased enough to keep them in power, but they weren't pleased enough to give them a second majority, which means that with issues like the Trans Mountain Pipeline, as you pointed out, NSC Lavalin, and many other things, they have to walk on eggshells as much as they possibly can, or else... The average lifespan of a minority government in Canada is 18 to 24 months. Even with a strong minority like this one, they will struggle to meet it if they actually act the way they did from 2015 on. Well, we might be off to a better start. I understand the Prime Minister didn't dress up for Halloween last night. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave it at that. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.